This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I'm very excited for today's conversation. Our guest today comes to us by recommendation of Amy Green and her wonderful organization, the Rural Water Technology Alliance. We've got a great episode, number eight, nine, or 10 or so on Ripple Effect, if you want to kind of catch up with her projects, because she does very awesome things. And so Amy recommended, when I was looking for people who had interesting perspectives, that I talk to her colleague, Roger Hansen. And so Roger is now retired, but for many decades, he worked for the Bureau of Reclamation in a variety of capacities, including being chief planning officer, as well as overseeing many projects regarding canal operations. And I'm just going to really let Roger tell you what he did, because I'm very excited to hear his perspectives on a number of issues. So. Roger, for our listeners, could you kind of give them a little bit of a background of kind of who you are and kind of how you came to working in water? When I got out of the Coast Guard, I signed up at Utah State to do graduate work. And uh, my master's degree was environmental engineering. And then my PhD was in uh, water resources and hydrology. And I ended up doing quite a bit of research with the Utah Water Research Lab while I was uh, going to school. Anyway, when I graduated, I took a job with the Bureau of Reclamation in Provo, Utah. For some reason, I ended up working there for, I don't know, over 30 years, principally in the planning office, but I had collateral duties that involved working with Native Americans, particularly those that live in extremely isolated locations, and also with the Canal Automation Group, which was working to bring some of the uh, computer and telemetry and other technologies to the smaller irrigation districts, which in the past have been pretty much the purview of the larger water conservancy districts around the West. And uh, we had quite a bit of success working with the Severe River water users, with the Duchesne River water users, and with the Emory Water Conservancy District. And peripherally, we did some work with uh, the Bear River. Okay, so you just like (laughs) hit on like five or six things I'm super interested to talk about. (laughs) So one of the things I want to chat with you about in our pre-discussion, you mentioned a couple of projects you worked on, several that you just, you mentioned again there. And one of them was you were with the Bureau of Reclamation working on the Central Utah Project. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you before we kind of get more into a discussion about your thoughts and kind of how your your skills can apply to some of our considerations today. Can you give just our listeners, you know, like what a planner for the Bureau of Reclamation does for working on a system like the Central Utah Project? Like what, what were your regular roles and duties in your job? Well, in the Central Utah Project, I was assigned to work on a couple of the different sub-projects. One was the uh, irrigation and drainage system, which was essentially the ag portion of the project on this side of the Wasatch Mountains. Then I also worked some with some of the uh, youth projects out in out in the Uinta Basin. They largely just involved, you know, looking at uh, alternatives, doing 
cost-benefit analysis of the alternatives, doing environmental assessments of the alternatives, you know, and I, I guess uh, it was our job to, if there were any new possibilities, to come up with new possibilities hmm. or new options. And so for our listeners, the Central Utah Project is a federal reclamation project that is here in the state of Utah. It is a trans-basin diversion that takes a fair amount of Colorado River water under Utah's apportionment of the Colorado River Compact and brings it up over the Wasatch Front to serve primarily Wasatch Front residents. And you mentioned, Roger, that there's a, you mentioned the word unit. And so the Central Utah Project has several units, right? Like different kind of parts of the project. Yes. Yeah. And so we, so you actually were involved in kind of the actual like construction and planning and like, you know, implementation of some of those later units then, like actually where to well, put not, the dam. Not, not mm-hmm. so much construction. Here I need to sort of give a disclaimer. I guess whatever points I make here are, are mine and they don't represent the Bureau of Reclamation. I retired from there eight years ago and you know, I haven't really yet totally kept up. But basically what happened when I was there about 25 years ago, the Central Utah Water Conservancy District went to Congress and they got authorization to complete the construction, planning construction on the Central Utah project themselves. They were dissatisfied with, I guess, the speed with which the planning construction was going. And they were successful in that. So then our office turned over those responsibilities, at least as far as the Central Utah Project goes, to the uh, Central Utah Water Conservancy District. And the, so they've carried the burden since, since I'm, I'm not quite sure. Late about 25, yeah. They've carried the burden as far as the planning and construction of, of what remained of the uh, Bonneville unit of the Central Utah Project. And the reclamation has uh, still continued to participate but merely as a uh, contractor, I think, to the Central Utah Water Conservancy District. So, Roger, I also want to pick up a little bit about something you mentioned in, in our introductory statements about as a later part in your career, you spent time looking at operations and technologies that were designed for larger conservancy district operations, big dams, to smaller ones. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, kind of what that work looked like? Yeah, the Central Utah Project, particularly the Bonneville unit, has a system on it that provides automation, I think, at each one of the facilities, as well as it uh, has telemetry on all the important stream gauging and reservoir elevation sites, which puts all the information right at uh, their office there or, or out in the field, wherever it's necessary due to the uh, telemetry aspects of it and the automation aspects. So this allows them to make uh, decisions in real time instead of having to send somebody out, and you know, to push a button up and lower, raise and lower a gate. They can do it, you know, automatically from their office. And this allows for 24-hour operations of, of the facilities. The Central Utah Project, you know, has a, since they're paying your salary, they have a fairly good financial base. Some, a lot of the smaller mom and pop operations or some of the smaller uh, conservancy districts, you know, don't have access to the, those kind of monies. So what we were trying to do is scale them down and c- come up with systems that were cost effective and that c- could work on, you know, some, some, even some of the more primitive canal systems in Utah. As, as you know, the facilities on the Central Utah Project are all first class, and 
they were fairly easy to install automation on. But if you if you go out and look at some of the uh, facilities on some of the smaller operations around the state, you're dealing with fairly primitive infrastructure, fairly primitive structures. So we were looking at one, you know, how how we automate the site. Number two, uh, uh, you need power at the site, and so we were looking at uh, solar. So we could have power whatever we did there without having to bring in expensive power lines. And then uh, we were looking at things that were fairly simple and straightforward that the water users themselves could maintain and, you know, didn't have to didn't have to hire expensive engineers or software people to uh, maintain. Mm-hmm. Our first uh, hint of what's possible was brought about by uh, Wynn Walker up at Utah State University. He had one of his graduate students work on a uh, low cost automation system for a uh, canal system in Delta. And we took, you know, what what uh, Utah State had done, made some improvements to it and added uh, solar power. The one they did was had commercial power, added solar power to it. And when water users started to look at these examples and see some of the advantages they had, being able to see what was happening throughout their watershed or throughout their service area, throughout their uh, control structures and stuff from their computer, they got pretty excited about it. And we were able to expand in other parts of the state. And one of the areas that jumped into it whole hog was the Emory County Water Conservancy District. So, Roger, I think this is so important of a discussion to be having right now because Utah is facing these acute water conditions, right? You know, and so we are having the consequences of a mega drought. We're having climate change. We're having population growth. We're having all of our water resources are being stressed. And frequently the conversation comes up to being we just need better data. You know, the state engineer can't distribute their water to the places we needed to go without better data. We can't measure the water and see how much we're actually using without better data. We can't comply with our compact obligations or our water rights without better data. And so, What I would be very curious from your perspective, having kind of worked on the process side of, you know, applying kind of scaling these big telemetry projects to smaller telemetry projects, you know, since you're not there now, since you've retired, (laughs) what are the things that we can do to make those projects the most successful? You know, like as the, the next generation of folks starts assessing irrigation systems and delivery systems to see how they can be updated and we can better track our water data. Like what was your recipe of success that you would use in in your processes? Well, I guess before I answer that question, I would like to back up just a bit. 80% of the water or some give or take a few percentage points in the state of Utah is used for agriculture. Mm -hmm. So anytime you talk about a shortage of water in either the Colorado River or with the inflows into, say, for example, the Great Salt Lake, the first area people are going to look at is is obviously agriculture. Even though the governor has suggested he doesn't think the agriculture should take the full brunt of current supply issues, in reality, they're, they're going to have to, to some extent, and well, to a, to a large extent, basically, because they're such a large water user. So I, I guess the idea with automating canal systems is to make them more efficient so that the farmers get the water they need. They don't get too much and they don't get not enough, but they get the exact quantity of water they need when they need it. And 
it's uh, hard to do that with a system, you know, with the old system, because you had a water master or a ditch rider who wanted to work eight hours a day. He didn't want to work 24 hours a day. And in order to get his data, he had to drive out to this, physically go out to the water measurement site or up to the water control site to, to see what was going on. Or if he wanted to change the setting in the gate because of changing weather conditions or something, you know, he'd have to drive out there to do it. So the concept with uh, our sort of low-cost solar-powered automation systems was to provide them the information so they could fine-tune their reservoir releases, they could fine-tune the diversions into the canals, and they could, you know, and in Jay's case, I think he's gotten to the point where he can fine-tune it almost all the way to the uh, to the farmer. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I, the idea is here is uh, the. Bureau Reclamation, the state of Utah, and others have spent billions of dollars constructing these reservoirs and, you know, getting them in place. And for a comparatively minor investment, you can become much more efficient using them. And this is, in my opinion, the the future of how we're going to be able to meet our future supply needs and uh, maintain a reasonable environment. Mm -hmm. And also just people too. I mean, people don't want to work 24 hours a day riding a truck around. I mean, I think you have to have jobs that people want to do. And so I think that there's a people component to these systems that I think is really interesting as well about who's there and what they're running and and making a job that, you know, pays a good wage in a in a town that's looking for those kind of jobs. The manager of the Emory Water Conservancy District, when he gets up in the morning at six o'clock or whatever, you know, he checks his system. Mm. And then uh, before he goes to bed at night, he's able to check his system and he's able to do this from his computer at home. So he doesn't always have to be in his office in order to uh, operate the system. You know, Jay would be a better person. Jay Humphreys, a manager, he'd be a better person to answer this than I am. But I I think uh, he feels this system has has helped their district immensely. So So in order to make these technologies really sustainable, I, I think, you know, we've been trying to work with the state to encourage them to to get more involved with providing some sort of technical assistance or whatever so they you know the various water users can uh, exchange information and if they have problems they can go to to people besides the bureau of reclamation mm-hmm. so having installed a couple of these you just mentioned the water user element of it the component of kind of like how to put the information in the, in the hands of the water users and making sure those water users have the means to have computers and can understand it and, you know, are, are familiar with what your the information you're sharing. In installing these systems, can you tell me, like, what were the barriers? Like, what were the pinch points? Like, what were the areas that in putting these in place, you found that you needed, like, additional resources or had to sit back and scratch your head? Like, typically, you would run into supply chain issues or contracting or getting the right easements, you know, kind of what are the brass tacks of installing one of these systems in the areas where you found that required a little extra attention to kind of put on the radar of everyone doing this today? Well, I think most of the easement and other problems associated with them had already been worked out when they put in the gauging stations. So all we're doing is adding electronics and communication devices inside the uh, existing facility. The automation we were installing on existing uh, diversion dams and releases out of ponds and whatever. So we didn't really have to deal a lot with that. We didn't have to deal with the environmental issues particularly either because, again, we were dealing with uh, making alterations to existing 
facilities and whatever alterations we made were fairly minor. As far as difficulty, in essence, you're changing the job of a ditch rider or a uh, watermaster from being a gate turner and a record keeper to being somewhat of a computer nerd and a uh, communications nerd. And so some people weren't particularly comfortable doing this and they ended up retiring or, or whatever. But, you know, other, others, uh, particularly, you know, if you had younger people in those positions, they were pretty excited about the possibilities and uh, were able to adapt to it fairly easily. Mm-hmm. And do you, you know, in looking for this people, did you find that there was sufficient training here in the state of Utah to give those folks jobs that that they were qualified to do? Like, is that an area of investment that you see that is an area that we could maybe spend some time and resources is better training for these kinds of positions? Well, right now, uh, Amy, with the Rural Water Technology Alliance, has uh, training sessions, at least she had up until the last couple of years. She had them yearly. and. I think the uh, they were very well attended, even by uh, groups from outside the state. So I think training is important, and there's no doubt that more training could be done. Right now, I, you know, Amy's doing what she can with Rural Water Technology Alliance, but uh, more could be done. And this is something, you know, that we'd like to see maybe the state get more involved in since the record keeping and water rights and stuff were essentially a, a state responsibility. Mm-hmm. And information sharing is always going to be the crux issue for that. You know, one party gathering it, you got to get it to where it needs to go. <laughs> yeah, the right now we just dump it all on the internet, and so it's available for everybody. But some districts aren't very comfortable with that. They worry about you know if we get some bad data, or if maybe their neighbor will be looking over their shoulders or something. But generally, once people get used to sort of general sharing of the information. You know, if somebody gets their water from the Severe River, they can log on to a website and see what's happening up and down the Severe River. And while they used to, uh, you won't like this, while they used to hire lawyers to uh, to resolve the differences between the upper and lower Severe River, I think they're now able to at least argue over who pays for the rent or something. And so they still have things to argue about, but it's uh, less legal. Well, I have to tell you, Roger, I am not worried about job security. Uh, <laughs> it well, is a very good. So you're okay. Well, no, just in general, I just think that the there's going to be no lack of water issues in the future. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, with these kind of decades of experience installing these systems, you know, making this information so much more accessible to the water users and, and the district managers, what do you think is the thing that we should be focusing on as a state from a policy perspective to promote this activity to continue to grow? Like, what what are, what are some things that you think would be helpful for us to do to support the more of these systems being installed? Well, certainly helping with some finances as far as seed money goes. But uh, the thing about technology is, as, as you know, I mean, I'm 77 and, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> anyway, I can't keep up with the technology. And mm-hmm. anyway, uh, the uh, technology involved in these things is rapidly evolving both from a software perspective, from a hardware perspective. For example, uh, for these systems, 
systems to operate efficiently, you have to have sensors to sense either the water height or the water quality or gate position or something. Anyway, this there's going to be huge expansion or a huge evolution in, you know, the kind of things you can do with these systems. So, uh, you know, there needs to be somebody that stays current on what's feasible for these individual companies to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I think the federal government has a role there, but I think get to more to a local level of this, it would be good for the state to get more involved. And I guess every time I've met with them, I mean, I've encouraged them to, I, I haven't had any feedback on how much, how much they're, they want to get involved or how much uh, they can get involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely. We've worked, we've worked with both the Division of Water Rights and Water Resources. Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely think that distribution is a, a top, top state priority for sure these days. So one kind of a little bit of a background question, which I think is going to lead to kind of back where we are today. Where are these systems typically purchased from? Are they private purveyors? Are they like different like I am company X of telemetry or are they, you know, wh- who is generally the like the contractor or not, not not installing, but like who is the company that generally produces these telemetry systems that you guys have been installing? Is it just a selection of private guys? I don't know if you want me to m- mention manufacturers or not, but the principal vendor we used was Campbell Scientific out of Logan. Uh-huh. They provide data loggers, but uh, the rest of the system, we just uh, sourced out to the least expensive uh, providers, the uh, solar panels, the solar, you know, powered system, the software, those type of things. So would that involve you working with multiple vendors to get a system complete? Because I'm just trying to think about the next generation who wants to help kind of modernize these systems, you know, how much effort is it to actually get one of these installed? Like, are you, you know, do people show up with a package? Do you, you know, is it to, to a stage where you, you know, people are still sourcing through multiple vendors? You know, what is that land? What did that landscape look like? Did we learn lessons on? Mm-hmm. We just went out of multiple vendors, I guess. After a while, we, uh, you know, I did the federal procurement requirements and stuff, you know, we, we were able to sort through the least cost providers and the people that were the best at, at providing the equipment. If you bought a uh, standalone system, at least when we started out, there was a lot of expense involved in uh, putting them together, which wasn't that big a deal. And so we tended to just buy from individual vendors and then either help the water users put it together or you know, show them how to put the, put the stuff together and take care of installation. We were, I guess our, our concept was we wanted the local water district or water user group to do as much of the work themselves as they could so they'd know how to make any repairs that uh, needed to be made and could do any troubleshooting or do any upgrades themselves with a minimum amount of assistance from us or others. And did you find that successful generally? For the most part, yes. I guess it a lot depended on who the personnel was at the various locations. Emory had sort of jumped in whole hog and, uh, you know, they're incredibly uh, knowledgeable about, you know, everything that's involved with their system. And I think they have right now over 400 sites that they uh, either monitor and they have about 50 sites where they have controls. So uh, considering they're a fairly small water district, they have a pretty comprehensive system. Mm-hmm. 
So where are the areas of the state do you think we should be focusing our attentions on since you've kind of had in a, a good or wh- who are good candidates for, you know, a system like this? Well, I, th- I think some upgrades on the existing systems in uh, Duchesne and Sevier would probably be very useful as well as anything you can do in the Bear River. Bear River provides half the inflow into the Great Salt Lake. So anything you can do there and it's largely agriculture. Mm-hmm. They uses of uh, the Bear River, or I don't know, they must be like 90% agriculture, I guess. Anyway, uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on putting more water in the Great Salt Lake. So I think that pressure is going to come from uh, probably a lot of it's going to fall on irrigators. And so coming up with the most efficient systems they can will be very useful as far as maintaining their ag base. I guess right now the state's talking about water banking. I guess probably a big area for doing the water banking will be in the Bear River. Yeah, I definitely think the Bear is going to be have a pretty big focus on it because it is such a large contributor to the Great Salt Lake. I agree with you completely there. A lot of the agriculture along the Wasatch Front's disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely definitely sprawly here. <laughs> so, Roger, you know. Do you have any kind of like parting thoughts that, you know, in, in your decades of working with water that you, you'd want to share with your listeners? Just is kind of like something that surprised you in your career, something that always delighted you that, you know, would be a good uh, send off for our discussion today? Well, I think my colleagues and I really enjoyed working with the water users. Uh, the federal government wasn't always, you know, when we showed up on site, they, we weren't always real popular for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but uh, we found that our group, People always uh, welcomed us with uh, open arms. So uh, I, I think we were providing a valuable service. And uh, I think we've uh, de- we demonstrated a, a very valuable uh, addition to the agriculture, water infrastructure in the state. And for the most part, it's, it's uh, very cost effective compared to, say, building a new reservoir or whatever. Yeah. I would and- like to point out a couple of things. They're not exactly on topic. Yeah, uh, please. We need to tell Senator Lee that we don't need more reservoirs. We need to uh, tell whoever's writing the Tribune that we don't need to pump water from the Pacific Ocean. And cloud seeding is not going to save us. It, it, may, it may improve our uh, snowpack a little bit, but it's not going mm. to be enough to get us out of the problems we're in. So if it, at the very most, it's a, it's a minor solution. So I, th- I think we're going to have to live within our we're going to have to learn to live within what we've got. And I think, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, the legislature and the federal government and hopefully everybody is is coming to that conclusion. And we can work together to uh, figure out, you know, how we can best keep the Grape Salt Lake with water in it and still maintain an agriculture industry in the state and, you know, do what we need to do to keep the state viable. As long as we're going to encourage uh, urban growth in Utah, there's going to be pressure on water. Yeah, I'm with you on the we need to learn to live within our means because that is exactly where we are right now. (laughs) Well, Roger, this has been delightful. I love learning about where we came from and, and some good lessons for going forward. I think the work you've been doing for decades is incredibly important without good distribution systems and telemetry and, and means of measuring and, and accounting for our water, we're really, we're really nowhere. And so I appreciate all of your efforts here on this front because it's it's a very important front to be fighting. So I would like to mention one other thing. Yes, please. John Powell is sort of the godfather of 
of water development in the West. He's Beer Reclamation considers him their founder, and so does the U.S. Geologic Survey. Anyway, uh, he understood that uh, the water was limiting in the, in the Intermountain West. It wasn't well, it wasn't land, and he had a rough time convincing uh, Congress and others that this was the case. And I think we're finally at that point, hopefully, where we all are starting to understand that the thing is, you know, limiting now is it's not land. We got plenty of land. It's a uh, you know, it's, it's our water supply. And so, uh, you know, living within our means would make John Wesley Powell infinitely happy. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I'm a John Wesley Powell fan. And the first thing I show on my first day of the water law class is John Wesley Powell's map of how he thinks we should divide the Western states. And it's all by watersheds. It is not big square states. <laughs> well, that's well, lovely. convincing Congress that uh, water was limiting. A lot of the congressmen thought that rain would follow the plow, and uh, it turned out not to be the case. Yeah, I think we're I think we're at the edge of that plow right now and figuring that out. Well, Roger, thank you so much, and I, I wish you well. And we'll be in touch at some point in time. I'd love to have you circle back with Amy, and you know she's a great resource. So maybe we could talk about some other projects that you guys have worked on and got going together. But this has been fantastic, and I wish you a great day. Well, uh, Amy and I'd like to invite you to take a look at any of the projects. I guess uh, if you'd like to spend a day out at the Conservancy District's expense, we'd be glad to show you around. Yeah, we'll definitely take you up on that. Okay, please do. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.